Once again, to Rediscovering Your Passion and Purpose with Patty, and I am your host, Patty Stulen, and I am also the Chief Pathfinder of Pathways with Patty. Once again, in Season 2, we have another dynamic guest that I'm excited to have her share her story with you today. Her name is Sarah Sherman. She is a mother, grandmother, wife, and badass woman who knows that the world isn't always nice or easy. She has created the life she wants after many years of never feeling like enough and the constant need to be like, which led her to ignore her personal needs. She has learned it is okay to slow down, not be busy all the time, remember how to play and have fun and laugh. A big part of her finding this level of contentment and peace is through the We're Here For You Comfort Kit project, which was developed after her own experience of leaving a sexual assault nurse examiner's room with nothing. Sarah, it is a pleasure to have you here today as my guest. How are you doing today? I'm great, Patty. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you so much. I'm I'm excited that you could be here. I, I know when we we met and talked uh, last week, your story, I know, is not uh, an isolated event. It happens every single day. You are very aware of that. And with your story, it is truly something that needs to be spotlighted. And because of the things that you are doing, because of what happened to you, uh, of creating something much better for other victims, uh, I'm truly, I, I admire everything that you're doing. And I'm excited for everyone to hear uh, your story and be inspired by what it is that you are doing from the experiences that you've had. So why don't you go ahead and please share with our audience a little bit about you and your story. Okay. Well, my name is Sarah Sherman and I live in New Brunswick, Canada. I didn't always live in New Brunswick, Canada. I used to, uh, I spent most of my life on the West Coast where I believe you are on the West Coast, yes. but up in Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, I moved here 13 years ago to start fresh, to leave behind the past and the negativity and to give my kids a fresh start too. So um, I grew up in Canada on a place called Vancouver Island mm -hmm. and in a small town. Well, it was considered small there, but where I live now, it would have been a big town because <laughs> I've moved to such a smaller place. Anyways, I uh, grew up there and I lived in a very um, strict kind of religious background. So not that religion is bad and I turn it down on people or anything. It's just that because it was so strict and so structured and so patriarchal, it didn't give me the ability to speak up or find a voice. Mm, okay. And when things happened to me, I couldn't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. So when I was um, uh, abused as a child, I couldn't tell anybody because I'm already worried about, I'm six years old and I'm worried about what's going to happen when I go to heaven. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's, right. it's, you know, so how am I going to manipulate the next 50, 60 years right. when I, at six, I can't figure it out. So the reason I add that to feel important is because it um, took away my trusting myself 
mm-hmm. listening to my own personal voice and what is right and wrong. Um, I had wonderful parents, but they were very strict in, in their belief system. Right. So as I grew older and I um, was unable to speak out and to let people know, you know, that I was being um, a bullied or hurt and nobody stood up and helped me when it happened, you know, bus drivers, mm-hmm. teachers, nobody did anything. Oh. And it just, it, it, what it does is a young woman who's developing anyways, and you have church telling you, cover yourself up, don't do this, don't do that. And then you have school telling you, you know, all these negative things and, and you're in between going, there's nothing right uh, that I can do. Right. I don't have any value. Nobody sees me as important. So low self-esteem is what's developing out of all of that. Absolutely. No to low self-esteem, uh, eating disorders, because you're just trying to cover yourself up. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, all of those things that happen and, uh, detrimental, um, relationships. And so as you get older and then I, um, I grew up and I left home as soon as I could, uh, just to get away, (laughs) not because Mm -hmm. my parents were bad. I have to keep saying that it's just that I needed to find a life. And so then there was the struggle between being, thinking that I'm a bad person because I'm doing things that, um, are against my church, but Mm. they're really just normal teenage kind of things. Right. Right in my head and in my soul, it, these are life altering things. Right. And then being unable to, um, well, it was the eighties, you know, people didn't listen to people like now it's still not perfect, but it's sure a lot better than it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I simply was, um, I wouldn't tell anybody when things happened because what were you wearing? How much did you drink? Who were you with? What so you already you being made out to be the victim before anything else yes yeah and 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 the one at fault right right you were to blame you know yeah I'm to blame because I was there so all of those things um kind of came down and uh then when I was 20 I met a, a man who was 28 and um ended up being in a relationship with him for 18 years mm-hmm. and it was a very negative relationship it was an abusive relationship but it doesn't start out right away right right like anybody who they think why don't women leave why don't girls leave why don't you protect yourself right um it doesn't start out that way it starts out that um they're loving they're flattering you're beautiful for to be told for the first time that you're beautiful and that you're sexy and that you know mm-hmm. everything it's um, it's when, all it's all part of the grooming process that's happening absolutely and you know it's funny you say that because I've only realized a few months ago even though I know about grooming I only realized that Mm -hmm. a few months ago oh wow personally yeah yeah and it's all just part of continuing growth and improvement right Mm -hmm. anyway so the very first time that um there was any abuse he I was totally not expecting it it was at the end of a night, had gone to a movie, gone to the bar, had a few drinks with a friend outside talking and laughing and all of a sudden whap across my head. Oh my gosh. I had no clue. The person wow. who was with us didn't do anything, just kind of stood there, didn't say a word. And I'm just like, what did I do wrong? And that's immediately, I went to that headspace. What did I do wrong? Right. Today? Blaming yourself. 
Yes. And so, you know, and when someone is in a relationship like that, there's tons of red flags. Um, I was too young and naive because I did live in a very sheltered world. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm 20 years old, even though I spent two years being a little bit crazy and trying to catch up with what everybody else been doing for five or six years. um, I was incredibly naive. And so I didn't see the red flags. Right. And no, nobody ever told me if his family, anybody, and they all knew all of time, all along what was going on. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know that they knew that. Right. So anyways, all of this kind of goes on. And then, um, you know, it's very apologetic after when a woman has been abused or hurt, there's a lot of apologies. There's I'll never do it again. There was, you know, all of this. And of stuff. course you're going to believe them because you love them. Yes. And it's the first person who's ever loved you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, clearly I did something wrong and I have to do better and I have to watch. And so you, you train yourself to watch for those signals to prevent things happening. Mm-hmm. And then when they happen, you think, well, what did I do wrong? I missed something. I have to do better. Right. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen all the time. Like, you know, I suppose there are those relationships certainly but I think that in most people's lives it's um, intermittent so just when you think life's going smooth it's okay you can laugh and joke again mm-hmm. then bam something happens wow so um anyways I actually knew before we got married the week before that I shouldn't have married him like I knew that in my mm-hmm. heart and in my soul but I just went my church's excommunicated me now so I'm not going to heaven anyway um so nobody, what difference does it make right <laughs> and um if i'm gonna go I, to hell let's go down in a blaze of glory right, right right it's funny yes i never i never did in my religion there's different classifications of heaven and i never did aspire to the highest mm-hmm. i was always like just if i get there i'm good it's still better than this right <laughs> so I, I guess those low expectations on my life in general yeah. yes um Anyway, so I knew I should cancel the wedding and, but I didn't because I was embarrassed. I went, all these people have traveled here. I've spent oh, yeah. all this money. I've done all this. And um, I didn't think he'd leave me alone anyway. Right. Mm. Like I just, you know, I did. And maybe if you didn't to- marry him, it would be even worse. Exactly. So I did. And my only regret with that, besides all the rest of the stuff, my major regret, I suppose, would be a better word was that. Um, as much as I love my children that I brought them into that. Mm. And that is as much as you learn to let guilt go and accept what you can and cannot change. Those are just things that never quite go away. Right Right. now, alternatively, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have had my two beautiful children. So exactly. That's a tough one. And I think women struggle with that all the time. Sure. So, yeah. So we, we, you know, we kind of progressed. We were together for five years before, yeah, I think five years before we had our first child. Mm -hmm. Um, No, later I was 28. We were together for eight years. So I had plenty of time, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I never, I never trusted or believed or thought anyone would believe me. I didn't want to, I was working in social services and government. I didn't want people to know. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm helping people who are in trouble and I didn't want people to know that I was because that was just too embarrassing or maybe I would lose my job or 
you know, right. I'll be homeless right. because even though I paid all the rent, where am I going to go? I can't afford to live on my own, mm-hmm. all of those things. And, and so the, that's part of the um, controlling, you know, mm-hmm. um, nobody's going to support you. Nobody's going to believe you. Um, my family have lawyers. My family's better than yours. All those things control and condition you. And like you said, it is part of he's room. feeding you that information all the time. Correct. So of yes. course, you're going to just start believing that that is the truth. Yes. And I was always the main income earner. Um, one thing my mom did teach me was always have your own source of income. Mm. And so wise amidst, words. Yeah. It's this whole patriarchal life and restrictive life. She said that and it, it always stuck with me. So even when we had kids, I was like, okay, if I'm on my own, can I afford to raise this one child? If I'm on my own, can I afford to raise these two children? That kind of thing was always in my head. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then you have the financial control because I'm the one working all the time mm-hmm. and I would work two jobs and he'd work a couple months a year. And, you know, I'm trying to constantly keep us, get us to that next level so we can move, so we can buy a house, so we can have a baby, all those things. Now, now real quick, during all of this, mm-hmm. did you ever suspect or think that he was doing any kind of abusive things to your children? No. And I know that that's really weird, but I really don't. Um, Now, at the very end is when I left, Mm -hmm. when I could see that the temper was going from me to them. That's when I left. And they were two and nine at that point. Okay. So quite a long time. Sure. Um, And then I've got this government job and, you know, I'm moving up in my employment. So my um, self-worth is improving. I'm getting mm. valued at work. I'm now someone who's um, seen as someone with knowledge and expertise, mm-hmm. um, someone who can move up in the company, right? Right. And there was a lot of pride in that. But at the same time, that was pride to tell other people how smart my wife is, but mm. not at home, right? Gotcha. So yeah. the outward appearance is supportive, loving, caring, but not behind closed doors. No, no. I was controlled in what I wore and how I did my hair. Now you look at me now. Kind of like back to the church, right? Yes. Yes. Except for the church was don't wear makeup, wear simple hair. His was like makeup and big hair. And if my hair wasn't big enough, there was more hairspray. It was well, the eighties, you know, the hair, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you don't always want to do that. Right. Sometimes you're like, I don't feel like doing that today. (laughs) So just every single aspect of your life, what I wore. If it wasn't sexy enough, I had to change. If it was too sexy, I had to change. If it was too plain, I looked like an old grandma. You know, like just everything. There was just never any positive messaging. So did you ever feel like you were just a bundle of nerves of not knowing exactly what to do, how to do it, why to do it? I mean, wow. I cannot even imagine your insides, how tense you must have been constantly all the time. And I, and I was just gaining weight because I just, you know, if we'd have a fight, I couldn't go anywhere or tell anyone. I mean, we could be driving down the streets and and we lived in Vancouver, BC, and we could be driving down a busy city street and I'd get kicked out of the car and have to figure out how to get home. Oh my goodness. You know, like, um, one of my places to escape would be to go to a restaurant in off hours and just sit. And I didn't feel like I could just sit there and have a coffee. So I'd order a meal. And so I'm eating things I don't need to, right. Mm-hmm, just to mm-hmm. fill that's time your comfort. and space. And that, comfort. That's your love you're getting. 
Yes. And then people won't look at me either because, well, you're supposed to be eating in a restaurant. If I was just sitting there, we didn't have cell phones, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm Mm -hmm. just sitting there. So you would, I would do all these things to escape. Um, So yeah, that just kind of went on for a very long time. We moved a few times. Uh, We ended up in uh, Nanaimo, BC, which is where we were before we lived here. And um, at this point, um, I've accepted, I always thought, you know, after five years, I'd get pregnant with the second baby because I knew I couldn't afford two kids in daycare Mm -hmm. and I had to work. So I figure, okay, that one will start kindergarten and I can have the next one. Mm -hmm. And then he didn't want to have more kids, which was sad to me for a long time. But then I accepted it and I went, actually, this is okay. (laughs) This Mm -hmm. is okay if we just have one because whether we're together or not, I can take care of her. Right. And if we are together and we have the funds, my child can have opportunities they wouldn't have had that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. But then one day it was just, yeah, I want to have a baby. I'm like, okay. And I, I didn't really get to say no, excuse me. And I, and I wouldn't want to, because I love my child and I love being pregnant and everything. Um, but I just knew it wasn't a good time, but I did Mm -hmm. it anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and that's hard to say, because sometimes my child will listen to these things and it, it's hard for them, but they understand more now. I mean, it took me a long time to talk about this stuff because I had to wait for them to be where they could be accepting of what I have to say of my own truth, right? Without well, and in them. a sense, you've been brainwashed and you're also probably believing if he wants to have another child, then this is a good thing. This is going to be positive yeah. for the two of you. You're You're wanting to believe it's going to be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I was supposed to have eight to 10 kids, right? If I stayed at church, so two would be good. (laughs) Um, So I, I did. And, um, and, and it seemed like things were okay for a while while we were trying. And it was was one of those smooth times and our oldest was in, I don't know, grade one, I guess, and doing okay. um, Struggling, but doing okay. And then in the spring, I found out I was pregnant. And I didn't really believe it. I actually took four home tests and went to the doctor before I would believe that I was pregnant. Because I'm like, "Hmm, I don't feel the same as I did before, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I came home and I told him and he was all happy and not crying and everything. And then um, I thought things were okay. You know, there were still rough spots and things that were being hidden from me that made life stressful and like, uh, because he was home most of the time with her other child. Um, he would hide bills from me, phone bills Ooh. specifically, because oh. again, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So of course, then we didn't have cell phones with unlimited minutes. We didn't have phones with, you know, where not every call was showing up on there. So this was all being hidden from me and we had thousand dollar phone bills and I couldn't understand why. And clearly I was just ignoring a lot too because it yes. felt safer yes but, um and you didn't want to rock the boat didn't want to rock so when I was um I guess it was just before my 35th birthday because I was at that magical you're 34 and safe pregnant you're 35 mm-hmm. now you have to have all these tests pregnant you know like that mm-hmm. kind of all of a sudden right. change yes so say this is just my puppy saying hi <laughs> um <laughs> he's comforting me Um, so just before my 35th birthday, he told me that he was in love with another woman. Of course. And I'm four or five months pregnant. I can't remember. Oh my gosh. 
and not in the greatest mental health anyway. And I just, and I cringe thinking that I said this, but I said, um, do you know about that saying, you know, if you love something, let it free. And if it comes back, it's yours. Mm -hmm. So I said that. And I, I cringe that I said that because really I just wanted him to go. Right. But in his narcissistic brain, I wasn't fighting for him. Oh, so that probably upset him. Yes. And, and I often wonder, and, and I don't wonder this in the, could I have really changed things? But I do wonder, you know, like if I had fought for him, like he wanted, tried Mm -hmm. reverse psychology, whatever, Mm -hmm. maybe that would have made a difference. I don't really think it would have in the long run. Right. Right. Anyways. So the, the problem with this is that now I'm pregnant and I was sick every day of my pregnancy. Mm. Um, I am depressed. So I have to go see my doctor and go on medication. I have him going anywhere for days, not coming home. I don't know what's going on. Oh my gosh. I have this woman that he's seeing calling and tormenting me and leaving long messages and stuff. Oh, and it just got completely insane. And I couldn't tell anybody. No, I was like, I'm so embarrassed. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to do this presence of a healthy, happy little life for my, what was she? Six years old. Mm-hmm. She turned seven when the baby was born. So my little six-year-old, I'm trying to make her seem like, oh, this is wonderful. Mommy's happy and pregnant. And, you know, we would start to play this game called, I wonder if daddy's home yet. Because we knew that the whole change in the atmosphere of the house changed as soon as he got home. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't even realize we were doing it till later. I was trying to do it to keep her up, but I realized it was probably not a great tool <laughs> right. for her or for me. Right. So anyways, things got considerably worse and um, turned out I got a call from him one day that I needed to go see a doctor. And I'm like, Why? <laughs> Yeah, I apparently had a sexually transmitted disease. And now you'd say, why are you still sleeping with him? It wasn't by choice. It wasn't Mm. by choice. He wouldn't leave. I wasn't allowed my own safe space. I, even to this day, when I roll over and sleep, like I pull the blankets around me. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just, uh, it's just um, still there. So that on top of everything means that I'm sick with this baby. I'm now getting treated for this other condition. It oh. then impacts the delivery of the baby. So, you know, we're proceeding on and all these things are happening and I'm being tormented constantly. And now the doctor says, you know, when you have the baby, you're going to have to just basically be strapped to the bed with the fetal monitor on you and a drip coming in because we have to be careful that the baby doesn't get strep B when she's oh born. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. But whose fault was that? Mm-hmm. Mine, right? Right. So it was just incredible. Um, very, very difficult pregnancy. Anyways, so then just before she was born, um, my due date was November 20th, 2001. And so on November 19th, I just had it. His girlfriend called again and left this message. And and she would know when he left because he'd call and say he was leaving. Because I know he did from his cell phone. And so she Mm -hmm. would call me and act like she didn't know he was gone. And I wasn't allowed to pick up the phone and speak to her. 
and he wouldn't leave the house as much as I had been trying to get him to. And so um, I picked up the phone and I, I'm not ashamed of what I said, but of how I said some of the things that I said, because I had just, I was at the end of my rope, right? Mm -hmm. I'd been going through what, 16 years, 15, 16 years of this at this point. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm due to have a baby any second. And this woman is calling to taunt me. So I picked up the phone and I gave her, I, I actually still can't believe she didn't hang up on me. And she listened to all the things that spewed out of my mouth. because But you needed not. to vent. I absolutely did, Patty. I was like, oh, wow. But the fact that she listened to it blew my mind. It still does. Anyways, so uh, she called him and told, oh, no, I did. I called his parents and said, you need to come get our oldest from school because your husband and I, or your son and I are having it out tonight. And she doesn't need to be here for this. So then he called me because she had called him and said, I'd talk to her. And he got mad because, you know, he's trying to work. Oh, well. Right. Like, so sorry. You're inconveniencing him. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry to inconvenience you and your, you know, four years of work and 20. Mm-hmm. Anyways. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so he came home and it was very bad. And um, by the end of the evening, he had beat me up and I had passed out on the floor. Oh. I'm nine months pregnant. And um, I just kind of eventually slithered into the bedroom. And um, then in the morning, I went into labor. Surprise, right? Mm. <laughs> so I go into labor and he wasn't going to drive me to the hospital. Oh. And he's like, we're five minutes from it. He wouldn't drive me. He's trying to sleep. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so and who wanted I, this baby? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I called a cab and then he got mad at me for calling a cab because if I he didn't drive me, people would know, right? Exactly. That look so, make him look bad. Exactly. So then he got up and I had to go take him to the bank to get him money before he would take me to the hospital. And you're in labor. So, I'm in labor, Patty. You know, in the time it takes to hit fast cash on your bank machine, I had three contractions. Oh my gosh. I'm dying in there. I'm like, I'm not going to make it to the hospital, but I had to get money because otherwise he wasn't going to take me there. So I did. And um, if you saw the photos of that day, he does not look like anyone I ever knew. Um, He looks very dark, very, very dark and angry. And my poor little baby, you know, like just struggled and um, had a very hard time because obviously I'm going through so much, right? Right, um, right. She wouldn't, she wouldn't nurse properly. She struggled. So, you know, she gained, no, she lost a pound in one day, mm. which when you're seven pounds <sighs> is significant. Oh, sure. Yeah. So anyways, the life continued and um, he was still around and wouldn't leave. And now we're in the summer of the next year. And there's an afternoon where we're supposed to go see friends. And the reason I tell this story is this is my first restraining order Mm. in like 16, 17 years, my first one. So we were supposed to go to friends, but he'd been out all day and he'd been drinking. And I said, I'm not taking the children in the car with you because you're drunk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can go kill yourself, but you're not going to hurt us. And so you got really mad at me. And um, at this point is when I had started to see his anger started to float towards the children. And so I was worried for them. Mm -hmm. 
And then he had me like this against the wall and he was holding me up like that. He's choking you. He's choking me. And I was trying to yell to my oldest, who is seven years old, to grab her eight month old sister and go hide in the yard. And that's that's a really hard memory. Like that's a really, really tough one. Um now during during all of this, do you know or had the girlfriend ever expressed to you that that she was being abused by him or he was basically letting it all out on you and she was receiving all the goodness? Well, I I think that's how she tried to play it out, but there was one time and I must have been before this, where um he had called me and said his car broke down and he needed a ride. But it turned out later that it really had been that he had been in jail because he had assaulted her. And she so called the I, police. Or somebody did. I think probably oh, one of her kids. Gotcha. Um, so certainly she was a, a marginalized woman as well. She mm-hmm. wasn't treated well and she'd had like some stuff in life. And that made me all the angrier at her though, in the phone call, because I said, you know, like you've got all this, your own shit going down here and all mm-hmm. this bad stuff that's happened to you. Like, why would you do this to another woman? Why exactly. would you do this to another mother? Cause I said, I would never do that to a woman or a mother. And we are, we are all learning that hurt people hurt people. Yes. And that's what she was doing. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm sure. And I said, you know, I don't know what he's telling you, but if he's telling you I'm fighting for him, I haven't fought for him since day one. I told him day one to go to you and he won't leave. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> stop harassing me. Wow. Anyways, the, um, so you don't want to go with him in the car no, or the children. So at that point, I finally, um, after, you know, there was a little stuff going on there and battering and stuff. I finally convinced him that we would go, but I would take my car. The kids and I will go in my car. We'll all still go. I'll act like nothing happened. I won't look like I was crying. I'll it's summer, but I'll put on something that covers my neck, you know, like, so if anything shows up, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I did all that, got the kids in the car and left. And he was following us to see where I really went, but I managed to lose him. And I went to the police station Mm. and um, filed my first restraining order. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was really, really hard because I did work in government in social services and I had to um, tell them that I needed a couple days off work. I took my children to my parents in another city to leave them. I had my dad come back and change the locks on the house all while I knew he was incarcerated because they kept him overnight. They found Mm. him and they kept him overnight. Okay. And um, the first thing he did when he got out was come to the house the exact thing you're not allowed to do and Mm -hmm. my dad was there and I think my dad scared him my dad was a big guy and then he we called the police and they came and took him again but they didn't take him back to jail Mm -hmm. they just took him away and so you know after several months um this was in August and over the next several months there I started divorce proceedings and I was seeing lawyers and I'm paying for all the stuff I don't have money for, but I'm doing it anyways. Cause I know that this is it. You know, I, he hurt me in front of the kids and that was new. Um, and, and, and was, eventually I'm sure somewhere inside you, you know, he's going to kill you. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that was always from day one, um, from my first mother's day, I was told I will kill you if you leave me. Wow. And uh, if you try to leave me, I'm keeping the baby. You won't get to keep her. And of course, I'm not going to leave my baby. Right. Right. Who would do that? I couldn't do it. So um, there was, uh, what was there? You know, when they have um, supervised visitation. So his parents were supposed to come get the children take them to their house where he could visit and then bring them home at the end of the day. He'd have them for eight hours, but at his parents' house. Mm-hmm. Well, the children come home and they're sunburned. And uh, my baby was this fair, white, little redheaded thing. His parents had left them in a park all day because they didn't want him around with the kids. Well, it no sounds like they're not any better than their sons. <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> no, no, I was really upset. And, uh, eventually I even paid him off $10,000 to try to get him to leave. And it didn't, it didn't work. Like, cause we had had to sell the house, a house that if I had it now would be close to a million dollars because of where it is mm-hmm. probably about 800,000. Uh, but I had to sell it and I had to move from a home that I could afford barely to rent that costs $400 a month, more plus utilities than what I could afford. So, and he was still crying to the kids that he had to live in his car. I paid for um, hotel rooms for him to stay in, like anything, just to keep him out of my house. And I finally couldn't keep doing it. And the harassment, I I couldn't take it anymore. So he moved back into the house, but downstairs. Oh my gosh. And then um, we got a new place to live and he wasn't supposed to move in, but he wouldn't leave. And I, and he's still seeing this other woman in the meantime. Oh my gosh. And, and probably others as well. Yeah. Oh. And so then I eventually, my friend who had rented me the house said, I, I don't want him there. And he wasn't supposed to be there. So after six months I had to move. And mm. so I had to find another place to live. And this time I said, you are not moving in at all. I have international students staying with us to help make rent. I have my two kids. I'm paying for daycare. I'm working. I can't have you living here too. And so he was supposed to move out and he didn't move into that house, but that's when the criminal harassment really started. Um, he would come to visit the kids and I was on a very, very tight budget. So I had these four little girls cause I had two international students plus my kids. Mm-hmm. And at this time, my kids were almost 10 and almost three. And I would make meals and I would feed all the kids and there wasn't really enough for me. Mm -hmm. So I would, they'd go, are you eating? And I'm like, no, I ate earlier. I'm not hungry. You know, the things moms do to protect your kids. Well, he would show up and he would eat. And I'm like, okay, well, there was tomorrow's supper. Mm Because what can I say? I can't say in front of these students, I don't have enough food for tomorrow. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, he very much manipulated that. And then he would leave. And I would go something sounds weird and I would look upstairs and I would went into the bathroom and I looked up through the skylight and he's standing on my roof oh staring down and I'm like get out of here get out of here but I had to be careful because I had these other kids with me and I couldn't let them know this is going down I should have had them taken elsewhere and I didn't um because I was just struggling to you know, you just live minute by minute. Like mm-hmm. you can't think, you can't think like I can now as to what should have happened then. Mm-hmm. So 
another night I was in my bedroom and I'm on my computer and I'm working because I had my own business at that point. I had left government. Um, they had cut downsized, you know, and I mm -hmm. ended up leaving and started my own business. I'm working in my room and I hear something. Now, keep in mind, I'm on the second floor and my bedroom backs onto a cement path. Outside my window, I go and I flash open the curtains and he's standing there on a ladder staring in my room. Oh. And almost fell off the ladder and got mad at me because I almost hurt him and he could have died, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could you like put him on that know, ladder? <laughs> I know. You do me on that ladder. Like, I'm like, get out of here. I'm going to call the police, right? Because he's not um, supposed to even really be around. Um, well, no, the first restraining order had ended. That's right. And they put in, in Canada, they put a peace bond in after the first restraining order, which is like a one year, you have to keep the peace thing. Well, that year was over. And that's mm. when the nightmare really started because mm. he's like, okay, I'm safe now. The year's over. Mm -hmm. So things like that continued to happen. I would think that he had left and then he was on the doorstep or whatever, or in my house. Um, and then one day I was, and I still wasn't telling anybody, but I was very, very emotionally fragile at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. And my kids are starting to do a little bit better because he's not in their everyday life. Right. Um, and I was taking, I had an appointment, so I was going to take my baby with me to the appointment and it was a business meeting, but it was someone I knew. So it was okay to take her. Mm -hmm. And we're driving down a busy street, like a long, busy thoroughfare kind of thing, right in the city. And he tries to drive me off the road into traffic. Oh with the gosh. baby in the car and he knew he knew she was in the car and it didn't matter he's crazy yeah, yeah crazy yeah yeah beyond narcissistic but just crazy oh and i again i had to outrun him i'm in a i'm in a ford minivan and i'm trying to outrun him on the streets to hide and i managed to hide and then i saw him go by and circle around a couple times and then disappear so I went to where I was supposed to be, but I think I parked elsewhere. And I went in and she was like, you're late, blah, blah, blah. And she saw my face and she's like, okay, what happened? And, and I just, you know, he tried to kill me and my baby, right? Like mm -hmm. I just let loose and I told her everything. And she knew that he was crazy because in a business meeting, um, and I haven't said this in another podcast, but in one of the business meetings where she'd come to my house and we were having a meeting, you know, how you do when you're entrepreneurs, a kitchen clutch kind of meeting. And, mm -hmm. and he walked into the room, stark naked <gasps> and just stood there. And oh. she's like, what is going on? And I, I lost it. I'm like, get out of here. Like, what are you, what is wrong with you? And so she knew when I told her, she's like, yeah, he's crazy, Sarah. He's crazy. And I went, yeah, it, it just doesn't feel good. I don't feel safe anymore. And I say anymore, like I had been safe for so long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's what so, you had convinced yourself of. Yeah, yeah. Because you'd go through these periods of thinking that things were okay, right? Mm -hmm. So um, she reported it to the police. And I'm really grateful that she did. Um, because who knows? who knows otherwise where things would have gone. So she reported it. You to may the not police. be sitting here telling your story right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's quite likely. 
with her reporting it and the police officer coming over and he sat down with me at my house. I met him back there and I, I told him some of the things that were happening and he's looking at me and his face is dropping and he's like, and I'm like, I know it's probably not illegal. It just, it really doesn't feel good. And I don't feel very safe. And he goes, Oh no, this is all very illegal. Yeah. This is stalking. This is criminal harassment. This is because mm-hmm. he would show up at places that I was at everything, right? All the traditional things. And He's like, no, 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 this is, this is crazy. And he said, you need to come write that down. And I said, well, I can't come to the police station right now. And he said, why? And I said, cause um, I'm in charge of the school fundraiser and I have to make 150 <laughs> cupcakes for tomorrow. <laughs> oh my God. He's like, I think that's the most important thing right now. And I'm like, oh, I have to, because the, the school's already mad at me because I haven't been doing a very good job lately. Oh. So, it, so I. I was, um, yeah, so I did that, but I reported it. Now, one thing about having worked in government is I knew how to document things. Mm-hmm. I remembered times and dates and wording and everything, right? So mm-hmm. um, it just, I just sit and I spewed all this out to him in an email. And the next day they picked him up with a restraining order and he was in jail. I went to the um, Halloween fundraiser, <laughs> did all that, brought the kids home. <laughs> Got those and cupcakes done. <laughs> got those cupcakes done. And um, yeah, so that was that. And now the next 10 days, I started to feel like life might be okay, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I told my parents what happened. Like they knew it the first time. They knew this time. And I said, this is the last time it's not happening again. I can't put the kids through this. I can't live through this. It's, I don't know how it's going to go, but this is the last time that I'm getting Mm -hmm. a restraining order. And so I was required again for supervised visits and to let him see them. And I I said no to the little one. I said she couldn't. Um, And the older one, I said she didn't have to, but she said, I have to mommy because daddy will get mad at me. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. He's mad. It's okay if you don't. And anyway, she insisted that she wanted to. And all he did was ply her for information about me. Who am I dating? Who am I seeing? Who am I talking to? Like I had time for that. I mm-hmm. no, I never cheated once. I never even kissed anybody in my 18 years. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I just didn't have, first of all, I wasn't crazy. I wasn't going to get beat up for doing something stupid, right. let alone. I believed in marriage and that you're with one person. Mm-hmm. So then, um, it was, it would have been the weekend of November 6th and 7th. And I, I remember that because I know the day everything went down. We went up to my parents for a couple days. Everybody in the family knew stuff was going down. So one of my brothers and his girlfriend came and they, we all did an early birthday for my oldest because mm-hmm. she was about to turn 10. She was so happy. The family was there. She was the center of attention because she never got to be the center of attention. So she was Mm -hmm. thrilled. Mm -hmm. Um, We went home. I had all the uh, international kids and my kids and everything. And I felt great. And that Monday morning, I got up going, okay, I can do this. It's been almost two weeks. I can do this. I'm feeling good. This weekend family, I know I have support. Kids are at school. I took everybody to school. I went to a business meeting. I came back home. I walked in the door, locked the front door because, you know, you have to be safe, right? Right, right. When he jumped out down my stairs with a butcher knife. Oh, at me. my gosh. Yeah. And because for so many years, he would do 
crazy, funny things to me. <laughs> and I would go, ha ha ha. I tried to make them laugh. I tried to, you know, tried to connect somehow there. It didn't work. And he had been in the house for a while because there was stuff written all over my walls. He had taken a, a crowbar and bashed the walls and my computer and um, threw my phones in the toilet and everything. Right. So oh. I couldn't call, couldn't call for help. The doors were locked. And um, the next three hours, he proceeded to um, physically, emotionally, and sexually assault me. Where were your and girls? They were at school. Okay. My littlest was at preschool. So I had to pick her up at noon. And I had walked in the door at 845. Mm. And he kept telling me for three hours how he was going to kill me. And the kids, because he didn't trust my parents with their crazy religion. And he didn't um, want any of my siblings to be around my kids. And he didn't want his parents around my kids. And he knew that he was going to go to jail and he was never going to jail again. So he was going to die today, too. Oh. So they had to die, too. The big dilemma. This was the dilemma was, do I, does he kill me first or the kids first? Does he make me watch him kill them? Oh. And that for three hours, I'm doing everything from trying to just disassociate to trying to connect emotionally to trying to convince. And there was nothing. There was nothing there. He was just crazy. And it turned out that when he had seen my child on the Thursday prior, she had told him we were going to grandma and grandpa's for the weekend. He'd spent the weekend in my house going through everything. And he was there when we came home and he knew when we left and he heard me say when I would be back. And so he knew everything. And so after about three hours of this, um, I, it's November, there's no heat on in the house. He's taken everything. I'm laying there with nothing on, no blankets or anything. And after almost three hours, I finally said, okay, I'll call the preschool. And the only reason I said that was hoping that I could escape and get help in the time it took him to drive there because it was about mm -hmm. 10 minutes away. Mm -hmm. And so um, he took me and before I was allowed to call or anything, he finally agreed to let me put my pajamas on because I was shaking and he um had me with my head off the bed and he tied my arms down below me and then tied my legs up. And then the only thing I could do, and I don't know where it came from, some, some inner guidance told me to pull my arms tight so that the ropes seemed tighter than, tighter than they were. Mm -hmm. And that hopefully I would get a little slack after, right. But just mm -hmm. act. And I went ow, ow, it hurts. It's too tight. You know, even though had some movement because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was trying to, anything I could do and then he threw my underwear in my mouth and he tied something around my mouth to so I couldn't call for help and he threw myself after he had me call for help to let him go to the daycare he or the preschool he um threw my phone in the toilet and then he left wow. and I couldn't try to escape right away because how many times had he pretended to leave and hadn't left, right? Mm -hmm. Like if he was just, he could be standing outside my bedroom with that knife. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. Or the crowbar that he had been smashing around me, right? Like I didn't know. 
So I waited and it felt interminable. Like you have no idea how long it felt like. Um, but I waited and I thought he's not coming back. I don't hear anything. So I managed to um, unloosen one and then get the other one, untie my feet and run out the back door. Cause I was afraid to run out the front cause he might be standing there waiting. Mm-hmm. So I went to two houses and nobody was there. And I'm leaping over like the fence and the back deck and stuff to try it. And so then I had to run across the street and get help. And I, I called the police and it was probably just a couple minutes before 12. So it had probably been about eight or 10 minutes since he left mm-hmm. and daycare got out at 12. I didn't know what time it was, so I had no concept of that. Mm-hmm. Um, just a second. So, um, I called the police and they, um, were asking me, you know, like what happened? And I'm like, I don't have time to talk to you. You just have to know he stole my van. He's going to abduct my baby. He's going to this daycare. And he said, he will, he's planning to kill us all. And so he will drive into traffic if he sees anybody. Uh So, you know, like police cars came to help me and stuff. They put me in a police car. I sat for an hour outside my house in a police car. I see all these police and I don't know what's happening. Nobody's telling me anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm like knocking on the window, like, you've got to tell me what's going on. And I'm sitting in the police car barefoot. Like they didn't bring me anything for my house or anything. Mm -hmm. And um finally about an hour later the officer comes and says um there's been an accident and we need to go to the hospital he goes we think that your little girl might have been hurt and I'm like okay um, of course I'm frantic and he gives me a cell phone to call my mom and I called my mom uh, she was an hour and a half away and I said you need to get here quickly I don't know what happened I just know Jessica's been in an accident and you need to go get Rachel at school and meet me at the hospital and don't ask me any questions because I don't know anything else. Right. And so then the police officer took me to the hospital. And now this next part comes into the work that I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, that was all what precipitated me needing to get into this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got to the hospital, the officer said, um, your baby's in the emergency room. We can go in. And I said, I'm not going in there. And he said, why? And I said, because he's in there. If she's in there, he's in there, right? And I can't see him. I'm terrified because I don't know what's happened. Right. And, and you don't know what he's going to do when he sees you. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know if he's been injured. I don't know if he's sitting there with police. I don't know what's going on. And he said, you won't see him. And I said, you can't. You can't um, be sure of that. And I said, and I have no footwear and it's November. I need you know, like I need something. So he said, I'll be right back. So he went in the hospital. He brought me back some of those paper booties they wear in the OR, you know, mm-hmm. really warm and comfy. Oh, yeah. and that's and that's, that's going to oh, yeah. warm you right up. Yeah. Great November footwear. <laughs> um, so he did that. And then he came back and he said, no, he's not there. He's on a different floor. And I'm like, okay, that just sounded weird, but whatever. Okay. He went and checked. So I went in and then I was taken to a quiet room um, because they wouldn't, I said, I want to go to the ER. I want to see my child. And they go, well, we don't know if it's your child. What? what? <laughs> I said, okay. And they said, well, we think that this baby isn't yours because she's too small. Like my little girl was 10 days before her third birthday. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, my child's really little. She's like the size of a year and a half year old. She's very, very tiny. And they said, okay. So they brought me, I don't know if you have them in the US like this, but they're the plastic hospital bags with like the blue writing and the big handles on them. And they brought it over to me and they opened it up and I got to see her bloody cut off clothing. That is something that nobody should do to a mother. You know, no. like there had to be a better way for me to identify her than that. Like, yes, she has red hair and blue eyes, something, right? Yes. That was, I just felt like I was going to throw up and cause you know, I'm not feeling good anyway. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. A, a rough, After everything you just morning. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. It's been a rough day. And so I'm like, no, that's her. She's very, very small. So they took me into her. And I walked into the ER and to the left of me, I saw a child um, naked on a stretcher cover, surrounded by doctors and the child was blue. And I'm like, okay, that's not my child because they're too big. But I just, it stood out to me. I knew there was a reason it mattered. Mm-hmm. And I learned later why. I'll tell you that in a moment. Um, so they took me over to her. And the police officer was next to me and I'm like trying to stand there because I just feel like I'm going to pass out. Mm-hmm. And the doctor said she was going to um, by air ambulance to Vancouver. And did I want to go with her? And of course I did. Right. right? This is your but child. I said, yeah, I said, but I can't. I said, um, I'm not well. I don't want to take away from anyone's attention because she was in very bad shape. And I have another child here who's going to need to see me. And I knew my child was going to be in um, the operating room for a very long time. I think it was about 10 hours that she was in surgery. And, but I knew she was going to be okay because she looked up at me. She's laying there in very bad shape. And she's got the neck collar on and the doctors around her and tubes. And she looks at me and her big blue eyes go, mommy, it hurts. And I just went, oh, she's going to be okay because she mm-hmm. knows who I am and she mm-hmm. can feel pain. And I don't want her to feel pain, but it's good that she can, right? Right, right. So I'm like, I'm, I know, baby. I know you're going to be okay. The doctor's going to fix you all up and you're going to be okay. And mommy's going to be there. And just those little tears coming out of her. She, you know, I mean, it took all her strength, I think, to say that, right? Sure, sure. And um, so they flew her to Vancouver and I went into the room with the sexual assault nurse examiner because I knew that I had to get all the evidence because he's going to jail he's not coming back he's never gonna I'm never gonna see him again if I don't have to Mm -hmm. so at that point um my mom and my oldest were there so I saw them in the hallway and comforted my oldest and I just said she's like what happened and I'm like not really sure um um, just, you know, Jessica's been in an accident and the doctor's just going to take her to Vancouver and fix her all up. And we're going to go see her. And she's like, okay. And she goes, I want to be with you. And I'm like, well, you can really soon, but you have to sit here with grandma because I have to go with these nurses. And a a sexual assault exam can take three to six hours to do. Mm -hmm. Mine was about three. I think it would have been longer, but I later learned out why it wasn't. So and okay. I will again explain that. Mm-hmm. It's a long story, sorry. Um, yeah. And so we did that. And then we, um, I was surprised because when I first walked in the hospital, I saw all these people I knew. 
and I couldn't understand why I saw them all, why I knew them all. But that's because everybody knew and I didn't. Like it had been on police scanners and the radio already, right? And I didn't know what was going on. They knew more than me, <laughs> as little as we all knew. So I had the exam and that's really, really tough because you go in the room and you can't leave. The door's locked and nobody can enter or exit during that time period. Hmm. Um, you, you can't go to the bathroom before you have an exam. You can't drink or eat anything because they can't lose any evidence. And so I was fortunate enough to have a victim services worker with me. Mm -hmm. And she sat with me through it. And the nurse was great. She told me everything she was doing. She was very gentle. There's nothing wrong with what she did. She did a great job. However, at the end of it, I had walked in with two pieces of clothing that they had to keep. I had nothing else. They had nothing to give me. Oh. So the, I'm like, well, they're like, okay, you're all done. I'm like, well, I need something to leave. I have to get to Vancouver to my baby. I, what can I wear? So they found me more paper booties. They found me, you know, the paper maternity underwear that you get after a baby. Yes. Yes. And an ill fitting, which it, it was very nice, expensive. And I'm sure the person who donated it thought that they were really doing a good thing, but <laughs> the, it was a bright pink neon two-piece velour. I live in Florida kind of sweatpant outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and you no were the fashion statement. <laughs> And no bra. And I was still nursing. <laughs> so, oh. you know, it was just, it was awful. I didn't, I didn't ever imagine that you could feel worse after what I went through than to feel like that. Cause I just mm. felt like a stuffed sausage in this thing. Right. I felt mm -hmm. awful. And that comes to the work that I do now. Anyways, that all happened later in the day. We found out after I did another a three hour police report and the officers were great. Um, they were very helpful. Uh, I did a three hour video interview and did all of this. And at the very end, they told me he died on impact for seven wow. hours. We'd been going through all this. I was terrified of seeing him. I would, you know, and they knew he had passed away instantly, instantly. But if I hadn't gone through, if they had told me that, do you think I wouldn't already be in Vancouver with my kid? Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have done any, there wouldn't have been any point. So I get from a legal aspect why they did, because what I haven't mentioned yet is about the little boy that I saw when I walked in or the child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, my husband at the time had driven, see the police had found him at the daycare or the preschool um, they, as he was walking with her back to the car, he went into the preschool. He picked her up, seemed fine. He saw the police. He threw open the side door of my minivan. He picked her up and apparently threw her in like a sack of potatoes, mm. got in the car, slid the back, the door and sped off. And in 57 seconds, he had hit another van with a mother and her child. And then it had hit another vehicle. Um, of a father who had just had a baby and threw my husband at the time to the ground and threw my baby out. And my, that's why my baby was so hurt because she had no car seat. She had no um, protection. She was thrown to the ground to swap and she lost a couple liters of blood. 
Mm. And the officer was there instantly because like he said, he just they goes, they disappeared over the hill and then he saw them and he ran to her and he said she was gone. And he said, he's he's like, I'm an officer. I know when, you know, how to check for a pulse and all that stuff. There was nothing. And then he, he said, I shook her like, you're not supposed to do that. Right. But he shook her and he's like, come back. And she went like that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, yeah, so this impacted my whole community. It impacted uh, my school. So the little boy that was on the stretcher, was he alive? Um, He was kept alive. Mm. While his mother, while they hoped to get her out of her coma so she could see him again. But really... Mm. So it was a very long, legal, terrible thing. And I and I know that that's why the police had kept me going through that process. Mm-hmm. Not to help me, but to help the other people. And, and I get that. And it's probably good they did that because I wouldn't have stayed. I'd have just been out of there. I'd have right. gone home, thrown on some clothes and left, right? I don't care. Right. It doesn't matter anymore. So, yeah, that's kind of like the long, short story of my situation and basically out of all of that I realized that I I never loved myself I never felt I had value or importance I kind of probably almost felt like it was inevitable or I deserved it um I never yeah I found value in myself through work mm-hmm. I always thought I was the dumb kid in class uh when I got into work I realized I wasn't. I just was so shy. I couldn't even put up my hand. I couldn't ask for help. I would rather fail than have to speak up, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how my whole life went. Right. And that's not it anymore. It's, it's, I don't want that to be my story. Right. Like it is my story. And the fact is, I use it as a learning tool and as um, it's like the catalyst to help me moving in a different direction. And so now I've taken that and it took a long time because I had to wait for my kids to get old enough and for all of us to heal enough and for my PTSD to only flare up occasionally, you know. Oh, yes. Yes. um, To where I could be a helper person again and I could do things for other people. And that's what I do now. So uh, as it was mentioned in the... uh introduction because of especially what happened to you in the hospital during those three hours you have created the you comfort kit project so could you please tell everyone what it is you are now doing so others don't have to go through the same thing that you went through sure uh two years ago i decided um i kind of took my life back you know got my health in order and figured out, you know, who I was and my kids were all good. And so I decided it was time to give back and it was coming up to giving Tuesday in December of 2021. And I thought, um, how about comfort kits and, um, stuff like that for people who are assaulted at the hospital? I just figured there must, you know, it's like 20, almost 20 years later, there must be Mm -hmm. something in place. I'll just add to it. Thinking Mm -hmm. it would be a one-time, you know, make me feel better kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I was giving back in some way and it turned out nothing existed like that. Nothing existed still. Even even after all that time, nothing. Nope. 
even if we moved across the country, like tons of things, you know, and it just hasn't um, improved in that respect. There's the nurses are wonderful. They've been great. I've been working with them, but they're like, yeah, we don't have the tools to help our patients. And everybody knows the healthcare system is pulled enough as it is. So those extra niceties aren't a priority. It's not a priority. Yeah. No. And so I said, well, how about if we did comfort kits? And so I connected, sorry, my nose is itchy. I connected yeah. with all of these people in different areas. Um, Cause I live quite rural trying to figure out if something was in place and there was anybody around and there wasn't anything in place. So as a result of that, I have started the um, comfort kit project. We're here for you. And my husband, my current husband actually helped me come up with that name. And I'm like, yeah, that's, a, that's good. I like that. You know, like we're just, we're here for you. That's mm -hmm. it just to help you right now. It's not about anybody else. And so what we do is we provide people with um, like a Ziploc bag and it's full of um, toiletries and comfort kits and resources, pens, papers, um, sanitary napkins, anything you might need following an assault, right? To kind of get yourself It's all together. the things you wish you would have had. Yes. And clothing and only new clothing. Um, for a couple of reasons. Initially, we were accepting good used clothing, but then it was, you know, COVID. So we we're like, you know what, just to make people comfortable, we're only going to take new clothing mm -hmm. and we leave the tags on it so people know that it's new. So they mm -hmm. don't feel like a just a cast off. Right. And those are all bagged and tagged. And then people can find things that suit them. We recommend you know, light or plain colored things, white, black, brown, you know, whatever, things mm -hmm. that aren't going to make you stand out when you mm -hmm. leave the hospital. Leggings. We even have stuff for young men who are assaulted. Um, we have footwear, you know, flip-flops or slippers. I can't really do too much else than that to try no. and meet the masses. We have, and gift cards. So because we're rural, you have to travel to anything. Mm -hmm. Gas is so expensive. Uh, if you're like me and you hadn't eaten in probably 24 to 48 hours, a meal would be really great. So just mm -hmm. even, I don't eat McDonald's, but I can tell you I would eat it then, right? Just oh, a yeah. McDonald's card, whatever. Uh, we have grocery cards, all those kind of things. And in the future, um, once we get charitable status, I want to get hotels to agree to one night stays for women and wow. people who are going through this because not everybody is going to leave their partner. No. But, and they have the right to make that decision. And not everybody wants to go to families or can't or to a, um, a transition house or anything. So we're setting that up for future. And we also have just nondescript reusable grocery store bags for people. So when mm -hmm. they walk out, they don't have that big, ugly, I've just been to the hospital bag. Right. So who doesn't have a Walmart or bag or whatever around them anymore right mm -hmm. so you don't think anything they can choose what they want for people who need makeup or special things we have some special things to the side that those people can select from whatever makes them feel comfortable to leave and they can shower at the hospital all of that wow yeah, yeah. Uh, i'm just first of all i'm mesmerized by your story i'm mesmerized by your your tenacity uh, that's what's got you here today. I mean, this is absolutely, your story is remarkable. And I, the way that you tell it, it's like, I have just watched a, a movie. I can see this being a, a, a movie. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here to be able to share it with everybody. And the fact that you are taking this horrific incident, not just incident, these horrific things, events, 
and that you are turning them around to not only heal yourself and your daughters, but to help and heal other people out there too, because we know that um, in many cases, this is almost a silent killer because of the way that you are groomed, the way that you are uh, brainwashed to believe everything that this particular person tells you and you don't feel that you have any other options and uh, you are bringing it out into the light. And I commend you so much for, uh, for what you're doing. Thank so you. going along with that, now where, where you're at in, in your life, what would you say you are passionate about most in your personal life? Oh, I think, um, making the most of the moments, you know, that we have, mm -hmm. like I've mm -hmm. learned in even just the last year or two to rest and that it's okay, not feel guilty. You know, it's mm -hmm. okay. The laundry's still going to be there. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's not going anywhere Um, to find joy where you can enjoy mm -hmm. those moments, reach out to people that you care and love and let them know that, you know, and mm -hmm. that you're there listen to people and talk to them. And so I've, I've started working with um, kind of as an offshoot of this, because this is all volunteer that we're here for you comfort kit. I've done not coaching so much, but, you know, working with women and youth to raise awareness. That's a huge part of the project as well is because if we can stop it, then we don't need that. Right. We know exactly. it's never going to stop, but if we can raise awareness, more people will reach out and notice other people's problems. They'll help other right. people. Right. They'll, um, listen and not judge and not say, well, why didn't you leave? Mm -hmm. Why didn't you leave? Like people could hear what I just told you and go, well, you had 18 years. You had a lot of chances to leave, mm -hmm. but it didn't feel that way. And I right. couldn't, or, you know, um, as a result of that relationship, I lost about a lot of other relationships because you get isolated mm -hmm. and you get, you know, broken. Cause that's what people. they want. Absolutely. So you don't have that support system anymore. So um, I'm passionate about helping other people realize their value, tapping into like that little child who felt like they could never speak up and letting them play, run funny, dance funny, sing badly, color outside the lines, whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. just do those things and, and don't feel judged so much. And so I'm really working hard on raising awareness um, with youth. I'm doing workshops, a lot of them on healthy boundaries how um, to know when your boundaries are at the right level for you, um, to have positive relationships, looking for red flags and green flags in, in young men and young women, and um, helping them to know that if they love themselves, they're going to see those other flags better, the red and right. the green. And right. I probably had some green flags I didn't see because mm -hmm. I didn't like myself. So I just went to the red flags, right? So I'm really, right. really passionate about doing that. And yeah, I, I just really want everybody to, um, we all are valuable. We all matter. Like in, in Canada, we only have 40, 40 million people compared to the U.S., but every six days, a woman is murdered. One in four women have been sexually assaulted or abused, you know, mm. like this. That's too high. Staggering. It is. And so when I sit in a room and I say that, we know that there's at least a couple of us, right? Right. So right. I just want people to learn that um, 
you can talk, you can get help, you can improve. And it might take 20 years, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you get there, you get there Mm -hmm. as long as you're still on that trajectory forward. Cause I'll tell you the first couple of years, I didn't really care if I lived or died. And if my kids hadn't been there, I wouldn't have made it. They were the only thing that if all. They, they, they definitely saved your life in many ways. I think we're stuck. Did we get stuck? Okay. I stopped it just for a second. Yeah, we, we, we got froze there. I'm going to start us back up again. So at this point, what would you say uh, personally and professionally is your purpose? Um, To raise awareness about mm-hmm. um, family violence and gender-based violence, I think, and mm-hmm. um, help people just find personal value so that maybe they can avoid it, or if they can't avoid it, that they recognize it sooner and know that it's okay to ask for help. Sure. So with everything you have shared with us today, I think I know, but I want you to share with the audience, what is your superpower? Is my superpower? I don't know. What would you say it is? I'd say it's your tenacity for, I mean, I I think a lot of it, you give credit to your daughters for, for making it through everything, but you had to have that tenacity, that will to, to continue on, not just for your children, but for yourself as well. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a true superpower because without that tenacity, you wouldn't be sharing your story with us today. Sounds good to me. It's hard. It's hard to say like, what isn't your superpower? I think it's, it's listening to, you know, it's just, I mm-hmm. listen to people and I recognize things, you know, and I can, I I'm listening to my intuitiveness more good. in all of my life. And that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Most yeah. definitely. So yeah. how would you say that you are living your best life or like, I like to say living your best dash, my best dash. Um, I think, um, through this project really is my best dash. It, I think it's going to be a legacy. Um, my, I agree. We, we started at one hospital. We're now in all the English hospitals in can in New Brunswick. Next we'll be in the English and French, and then we'll be in the rest of the maritime provinces. And we plan to be a federal nonprofit and go national. I think wow. every hospital in Canada needs to have this system. We just bring it in. They can hand it out. That's it. There's no restrictions, no requirements. You need help. You get it. Wow. Powerful. So Sarah, are there any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you would like to share with our audience? Um, I think the main thing would be to, you know, listen to yourself, listen to your body and your heart and realize when, um, when the world is, is giving you positivity, accept it. Don't try to discount it. Like even you Mm -hmm. saying the tenacity, my first instinct is to go, well, no, you know, like anybody would do that. (laughs) Accept that, accept that. Yeah. Accept that you have qualities of value and you have something to give to the world. 
um, and that it might take a really long time to get there and you're going to have fallbacks because I still get them. Mm -hmm. I still occasionally, you know, think I see him or hear him or dream about him or whatever. And it's been, it'll be 19 years soon. Mm -hmm. So just keep moving forward and um, don't beat yourself up if today needs to be a down day. Just don't Mm -hmm. make it every day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for being my guest today. I mean, your story, uh, it is powerful on many levels. And uh, I'm just so grateful for you to be here with us and sharing your story because I know globally it is going to touch a lot of people's lives, whether they themselves uh, have been a victim, are a victim, or know someone who is a victim. And uh, your your words are, are powerful. And I just appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Patty. I, thank you for having me here. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. So I, I know that once people finish listening to this episode, they are going to want to reach out to you and know how they can help connect with you, talk with you. Uh, how can they do that? Well, for the Comfort Kit Project, it's we're here for you, um, dot ca. So just like the we're, but without the apostrophe, we're here for you, dot ca. That tells you how to do donations and everything else. And if it's something that you want to start in your community, if it's in Canada, um, I'd like to stick it all under one umbrella so that we're mm-hmm. not all replicating everything. If it's in the U.S., I'm happy to walk you through it uh, or another country. And if it's regarding um, how to change your personal st- story, that's what I do in my private work with people. You are not your story dot info mm. um, because this is my story, but I'm not that. Right. So, you know, I've, it I've doesn't define you. It does. No. And that's my tagline. Trauma doesn't define you. Mm-hmm. So you can still, that can be your story, but you're not that story. Yep. And uh, for those of you listening or watching on YouTube, uh, keep in mind that in the description for this episode, uh, right below the description, it gives Sarah's links that you can go to. So immediately when you finish watching or listening to this episode, go to the description and look for her link and tap on it because you will be able to get direct access to Sarah and uh, find out either how you can help her and her cause or get some help from her and some more information about what you need to be able to help yourself or help someone that you love. Well, once again, Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, It is an honor and a privilege to get to meet you and know you and share this time with you. Thank you, Patty. And thank you for spreading the awareness. It's really important. Appreciate that. Uh, very welcome. Uh, and so for those of you out there listening, remember to subscribe and follow this podcast and go ahead and invite your friends and family, because as you've heard me say on social media and here on the podcast, we are now global all over the world, not just in North America anymore. And so uh, uh, get your friends and family and and while you're at it, go ahead and, and uh, hit that five-star rating and please write a review. I would love to get that from you as well. That would be awesome. And don't forget to check out my website at www.pathwayswithpatty.org and sign up for a Zoom chat with me. And you can also get my free Pathway to a New Beginning Roadmap to help you discover your passion and purpose if you don't have one right now. So until we meet again, continue to live your best dash and know that life's an adventure and I want you to enjoy the journey because your life matters. Thank you for joining us today and God bless you all.